welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and drinking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And, you know, sometimes we start these episodes by saying, today we're not going to be discussing a novel, but instead a short story, or today we're not going to be discussing a story at all, but doing a very special interview. But today we're doing something even more special because we are not going to be discussing anything whatsoever or even doing all that much talking. You, dear listeners, are going to be doing the talking on this episode. Right. When we asked you months ago, I feel as though perhaps some of you have long forgotten because, of course, the year 2020 has been, you know, 20 years long. So, you know, if any of you forgot the prompt that we asked many a moon ago, it was for you to uh, record yourself talking about what does and doesn't work in 2020 when reading Agatha Christie, because we know that you are terrific readers and terrific listeners, and we really wanted to hear and think about what you were too. And I have to say, just from having listened to all of these submissions and putting together this episode, just listening to them for the first time was a highlight of this Annus Horribilis. If ever there was a year that deserved the moniker Annus Horribilis, it is 2020. Not going to apologize for that. But this really was a, a bright spot of my year listening to all these submissions, mm-hmm. and it really touched both me and Catherine, and it felt appropriate to put this out around the holidays, uh, just because that is when people tend to get a little more in tune, perhaps, with their feelings and have a little space to do a little bit more hard thinking about things. And so many of you did just that when we asked and we couldn't be more thrilled with the results, which we are going to share with you now. And we will be back on the other side of it uh, with a few final thoughts of our own. So uh, here we go. We hope you enjoy this. Hello, Catherine and Kemper. Ajro here. Dr. Ajro responding to your really prescient, important question about stuck in its time. I would just say as a Black woman whose relationship with Agatha Christie books have changed over the years that, yeah, some of the stuck in its time um, points, it depends on the book, obviously, do really present a problem, as it were. Having started reading Agatha Christie at a young age and then following that evolution, you know, into teens and college and et cetera, as an, as an, an adult now, I would say in the beginning, it was a little shocking. You're reading the book and you're like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not, that, that, that's weird, but I'm going to go ahead with the story. But strangely, as one gets older and sees more of the world and understands one's place in the world, for me at least, I take it for what it is, that it is definitely from that period. But then I sort of, in my head at the same time as I'm reading it, wonder how it would be handled now. So maybe that's sort of a self-protectionary way of looking at it. But I definitely tend to say, okay, how would we view this relationship now? Um, How would we, what wording would we use? Would this even be an appropriate approach to it? So it ranges, particularly Hickory Dickory Dock, which you just covered, was clearly one that I found uh, troubling 
when it was younger. So that goes beyond the whole, you know, um, name for, um, and then there were none. And then, you know, the, the different variances of that, but also the relationships. And I really love when you discuss the Aquarian Agatha Christie a book, um, just it's always amazing when you you know connect those pieces you do wonder okay what would that mean in today's society and how could we bring this conversation up to you know a 20th uh 2020 view or 21st century perspective um but there are some times that you do have to go beyond just kind of writing your own narrative and understanding it as you're reading it. And there are there are times I've had to put books down, clearly, because I've just felt a little irritated and come back to them. But I guess it means for someone who loves Agatha Christie, balancing it and understanding. I mean, there are other things. I was actually speaking with my husband about uh, Ellery Queen, there are some far more less nuances approaches than Agatha Christie took and that just are blatant out and out racism. And then you decide, no, and bigotry, and you say, I'm never going to read that again. So I just say that uh, Agatha Christie was nuanced for her time. There is improvement definitely. And you kind of, you know, decide book by book which one you are able to navigate your way through. Hello again, one short thing. Was listening to the Dead Man's Folly episode and reminded me of a trip my sister and I took to the Greenway estate a few years back. There was a piece of Yoruba art, Yoruba ethnic group from Nigeria, and our family has a bit of a knowledge of African art, um, including Nigerian and Yoruba specific art guess what? The piece of art was incorrect. It was a bit colonialistic and really honestly stuck in its time. So we had a chat with the National Trust workers that were there. And, you know, National Trust is the beautiful organization that takes care of, well, one of them, but the one of the more well-known organizations that take care of homes and gardens of historical value in the UK. Anyway, we talked with them, we left, sent an email, and we're told that they were going to update the information on the piece. I'm not sure how it came into the Christie family, uh, but anyway, sometimes you have to update things that are stuck in its time, and it just sort of connected with my point from my previous message. Go to Greenway, absolutely gorgeous. Hello, Catherine and Kemper. It's your friend Brad from the California Bay Area. Thank you for giving us a forum to discuss this important topic. Agatha Christie celebrates a century of writing this year, and as a friend of mine noted this morning, few people probably thought we would be reading and discussing her a hundred years later. Christie and her kind wrote to baffle and entertain us. We may get the added benefit of a glimpse into early 20th century society, but we must remember that it was a point of view almost exclusively created by white middle-class authors of a white Christian patriarchal society. Anyone who differed in appearance or attitude from the average member of that society was feared, mocked, ostracized, or simply ignored. Christie was such a master of the genre and so much of her work gives me unbounded joy that I have steeled myself to the ugly moments I come across in her work. As a gay Jewish person, I'm offended by depictions in The Moving Finger or The Hollow, two books I otherwise love. 
As a white man, I still view with distaste the casual racism found in Death in the Clouds or Hickory Dickory Dock. Yet avid readers of any fiction must acknowledge that detective stories hold no monopoly on these attitudes. The history of literature is riddled with the same stereotypes or with the total obliteration from the page of non-white, non-straight people. Just because something is stuck in its time doesn't excuse it, especially when certain characters and beliefs cause pain to modern readers. The solution to my mind is to call attention to these elements, as you do when you discuss each novel, and to invite discussion about them. The mantra, we must never forget, inspired by the Holocaust, is essential here, particularly as those who choose to forget or rewrite history counter with comments like, it is what it is. If understanding and acknowledging the pain caused by these attitudes makes it harder for me to enjoy The Hollow or Huckleberry Finn or a Charlie Chan movie or Gone with the Wind, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Today, a good portion of our nation feels threatened when certain firmly entrenched cultural icons are reexamined for the negative connotation they have for a significant part of our population. Yet while I believe that Confederate flags and Stonewall Jackson belong in history books and not enshrined in statuary in a modern town square, I recognize that no blanket prescription can solve a problem endemic to our society. We need to have these conversations, lots of them, in order to put these aspects of our world into perspective and begin that long, painful process toward healing the countless wounds that have been inflicted. Agatha Christie has been a vital and positive presence in my life, and yet the things she wrote that offend us should offend us for the unacceptable attitudes they represent. This doesn't negate the great contribution she made to the genre, but we still need to call attention to them. We must never forget. Hi, Kemper. Hi, Catherine. Uh, my name is Fariha, and I'm from Houston, Texas. Uh, I started making my way through the Agatha Christie novels when I was 12, and completed them by the time I graduated high school. Uh, since I'm now 25, I've had a lot of time, and I mean a lot of time, to reread them, watch and rewatch the film adaptations, uh, you know how it goes. And what I've found is that by rereading these novels at different points in my life, I find myself catching certain snippets of dialogue or narration, what y'all call the stuck in its time elements during every reread. And it's different points every time. Uh, what I've also found is that when I was younger, I was more ready to reconcile or maybe forgive the novels for their lapses because they were so brilliant in their construction and execution of the mysteries, uh, the depth of the characters, and so on. And this actually mirrored how I've sometimes had to handle maintaining a relationship and sometimes just politely talking to people um, in my own extended family. Uh, I was born and raised in the U.S., and my parents emigrated from Bangladesh in the late 80s, um, and most of my family are hardworking, loving, traditional Muslim people. And as you can imagine, I have lots of family members who, because of the way they were brought up, because of their lack of exposure to a diverse set of people, have thoughts and opinions that can definitely measure up to some prize Christie stuck in its time zingers. And as a young American person myself who considers herself a feminist, an LGBTQ ally, and having generally liberal social views, I found myself in the position over and over again where I've had to have tough but necessary conversations with my family on race, gender equality, mental health, and so on. It can be hard to have these conversations because you love your family and you don't want to hurt them, 
but you also want them to understand how sometimes what they say and think can deeply affect the people around them and ultimately keep a whole community back from truly embracing what makes humanity special. Uh, sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not, but at the end of the day, it's still worth it to make sure that dialogue happens. Um, I guess an answer to y'all's question on how do I come to terms with Christie stuck in its time elements is that I think about the novels as members of my own family. I love them because I've grown up with them. I can see the good, the brilliant, the funny bits, but I can also see the ugly and the ignorant bits. And I know I can't have a constructive conversation with a book, but what I can do in my own mind is acknowledge that they're multifaceted. Uh, thank you both so much for putting out such a great podcast. It's one of my absolute favorites, and I hope y'all are continuing to stay safe. Bye! Hi Donovan and Catherine, uh, this is Daniel from Melbourne, Australia. So obviously the main thing that people will be talking about when it comes to Agatha Christie's work being of its time is the underlying and often overt racism. Um, this comes in the form of both there being no non-white characters and also in the more insidious form of stereotypes or racist caricatures. This is one reason why I actually prefer the Miss Marple stories to Poirot because Miss Marple is almost always contained to the village and her stories aren't as likely to feature any awful stereotypes because, well, everyone in the village is white. There's a terrible colonialist streak to Christie's writing, obviously, and I think that comes out most frequently with Poirot's stories. I'm currently rereading Death on the Nile, and for a novel set in Africa, there are no real African characters, but there are a lot of horrid remarks about servants and the people who actually live in Egypt. So even in this travelogue story, there's only really white characters, but these racist stereotypes keep cropping up. For me, as an Australian, Peril at Endhouse also features a fairly offensive set of Australian characters who turn out to be criminals, seemingly for no other reason than in the 20s and 30s in England, Australia was still thought of as a prison colony, which is a very English idea of Australia. However, there are other things in Christie that are just as of its time as the prejudice. There's the class aspects that modern readers maybe overlook, but are actually essential to her understanding of the world. But for me, the big of-its-time thing that strikes me in Christie is the approach to criminology and police work. This actually almost bothers me more because it happens so often and for longer stretches in the novels. Now, obviously, they didn't have DNA testing when these books were being written, but police moving dead bodies, contaminating evidence, and declining to interview, for example, servants for seemingly no other reason than because they aren't the main characters happens a lot. Poirot's outdated ideas of psychology and human nature as well, the little grey cells, is particularly annoying. He disparages police as being little more than search dogs, but he is essentially just guessing at what, for example, a woman might do due to her psychology or what he perceives in the glint of someone's eye. There's also his idea that people will only murder for certain reasons, mostly to gain something, usually money. That is, to use a criminological term, a very classicist or classical view of crime in that humans are calculating and rational and that they decide to commit crimes rather than the many and varied social, economic and political forces that shape criminal behaviour and indeed what gets classed as criminal behaviour in the first place. Which is funny because at the same time Poirot actually espouses ideas that are, to use another criminological term, positivist in nature, that people are born criminal and that lineage can pass down criminal traits. So Poirot actually represents two conflicting schools of criminology, the classical and the positivist. 
Now, obviously, I don't require realism when I read Christie, but I would like verisimilitude. But in the end, the whole premise of Christie's work, and indeed some of its charm, is that it is of its time, that murder is the purview of the idle rich and is almost always duly punished, often by the death penalty, in a kind of Old Testament sense of justice. And when the detective has correctly induced the murderer, nobody cries innocence. The jig is up. I don't even know if Poirot's evidence would hold up if his murderer had clung to their story that they didn't do it. Miss Marple certainly wouldn't. But that's not why we read Christie. We want the puzzle mystery. That's the buy-in. She wrote what she knew, English aristocracy and American new money, and added the scenario of murder. I don't think anyone would want to read a Christie novel that tried to be hard-boiled or featured characters from an indigent or disadvantaged background who might murder for reasons that are more pressing than jealousy or the bequest of a will. So how do we deal with it? I try not to read too many Christies in a row and always supplement my mystery reading with some more hard-boiled fiction if I want to scratch that particular itch of early 20th century crime fiction, my favourite being Raymond Chandler, though you often run into the same prejudices there too. So I try to read a more diverse selection of writers as well. But I guess the main thing is to not excuse these things, but to notice them when they're happening, to decide whether it's a choice by Christie to include something and whether she's making a statement about a character or whether she is actually expressing her own prejudice inadvertently or otherwise. We can still read Christie. We just have to be responsible and reflexive about it. Thank you. Hi, I'm a listener of your podcast from Turkey. There are certainly many troubling elements of Christie's novels. And then there were Nan's original title, mysteries that take place in exotic Middle Eastern settings but don't have any Middle Eastern characters, anti-Semitic stereotypes, the belief that the blood tells, the portrayal of servants, etc. Perhaps because I'm not from an English-speaking country, these antiquated beliefs fascinate me. I see them as a reflection of the society that these books portray. But I fully understand why people would be bothered by these problematic aspects of Christie's novels. Personally, as a Turkish person, I am far more offended by that weird stoning scene in the David Suchet version of Murder on the Orient Express than by anything in Christie's own novels. A scene of a woman being killed by being stoned wouldn't take place in 1930s Istanbul. But now I want to talk about a Christie novel that pleasantly surprised me with regard to its politics. This novel is Cat Among the Pigeons, which was published in 1959. In this novel, Middle Eastern characters and cultures are positively portrayed. Admitted, admittedly, they are a bit stereotypical, but they are positively portrayed. The book's ending is essentially a positive portrayal of a marriage between a Middle Eastern man and an English woman. This novel also has in it an unmarried woman who has a child out of wedlock, as she is perhaps the best person in the novel and is treated respectfully by the text. There is also a vaguely homoerotic relationship between two female teachers that admittedly ends in tragedy. This novel also treats women's education and careers as important and essential. Cat Among the Pigeons led me to believe that Christie's politics got somewhat more progressive as her career went on, especially her beliefs regarding gender roles and race. I understand that the problematic aspects of Hickory Dickory Dock may appear to contradict this. I haven't read that novel, but I've listened to your episode on it. My understanding is that in that novel Christie made an attempt to have a racial diverse cast of characters but failed miserably at it. But this is an attempt that she perhaps wouldn't even think of making earlier in her career. So perhaps the unfortunate thing is that Christie's best and most famous novels from 1920s and 30s also tend to be her most problematic ones. Cat Among the Pigeons was published in 1959 
and is not a particularly good novel of hers. But it proved to me that Christie's beliefs weren't completely stuck in a bygone era, and our politics somewhat progressed with our times. Thanks for listening. Agatha Christie's writings have a fair amount of casual racism and sexism, which is in no way excusable. Um, I don't think, however, that it's deeply felt or malicious. Again, it doesn't mean that it is excusable. But if you read the last, um, the very end of her autobiography, um, she writes how good it is to have these friends, warm-hearted, simple, full of enjoyment of life, and so well able to laugh at everything. Arabs are great ones for laughing, great ones for hospitality, too. Whenever you happen to pass through a village where one of your workmen lives, he rushes out and insists you should come in and drink sour milk with him. Some of the town effendies in purple suits are tiresome, but the men of the land are good fellows and splendid friends. How much I have loved that part of the world, I love it still and always shall. That's the very end of her autobiography, and in the epilogue, the end of the epilogue, fully four of her of her best memories that she recounts in the last paragraph are of the Middle East. So I don't think that can be someone with a deep, uh, deeply felt bigotry. In fact, I think it would be the opposite. Hi, this is Jean, and I'm calling you from Wisconsin. I read Christie because she tells terrific stories with memorable characters and mind-boggling plots. I mostly forgive her for her stuck-in-its-time shortcomings. We are all conditioned by our society and culture and upbringing to reflect the biases and beliefs of our times, whether we realize it or not. So I don't really expect any author from times gone by to reflect my contemporary socio-political outlook. And, and actually, I think it's more interesting that way. It's part of why what makes literature enjoyable and educational, um, learning how other people from other times saw the world. Also, since I'm female, if I couldn't stomach prejudice in literature, there would not be much left for me to read. Women through the ages have pretty much been restricted to the roles of Madonna or whore, if they even appear. Mostly, they don't. So yes, I notice it when Christie descends into stereotypical prejudices, such as those toward Jews and gays, and I don't like it. But it doesn't keep me from enjoying her work as a whole. The exception to this is her treatment of Marlene in Dead Man's Folly. That just made me gag and left me with a distaste for that book despite the great job she did in it with Ariadne Oliver and Mrs. Foliot. Having said this, I'd like to also point out how Christie's two most important creations, good old Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple, totally defy the stuck-in-its-time designation. With these two, she transcends her times, as few authors do. Poirot is a foreigner, in Britain, and he outclasses all the Brits he works with. He rejects all the hearty, outdoorsy, macho aspects of British males and nonetheless prevails every time. And he's very aware of the way Brits are stereotyping him and cleverly uses their prejudices toward him as a foreigner to manipulate them to his own ends. It's just 
brilliant and funny. Christie does the same with Miss Marple, one of the greatest creations ever, and a very contemporary one at that. Who has ever taken an elderly woman seriously? They didn't in Christie's time, and we still don't in 2020. But Miss Marple also prevails. She's smarter than the rest of them. She quietly observes, she listens, she notices. And while she's pink and fluffy on the outside, she's got no illusions about human nature. Like Poirot, she knows she's not taken seriously, and she takes full advantage of this to accomplish her goals. I imagine them both chuckling heartily to themselves when no one's looking. So while it's disappointing to encounter Christie's prejudices, it is also thrilling to experience her two stereotype-shattering detectives. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hello, Kemper and Catherine. Uh, My name is Jess. I am recording from the UK in a little town called St. Leonard's-on-Sea. Very Christie-ish, very deco vibes down here. Um, I just wanted to respond to your question about um, the stuck in its time element of Christie and how we navigate that in um, 2020. Um, So I thought I'd use the example of my book club because we've been contending with this very same issue. So I am in a Poirot book club that is uh, made up of uh, millennials. So we are university friends that all realise we were closeted Christie fans and have come together in our mid to late 20s um, to have a Poirot book club and so we've had it for about a year. Obviously a lot has happened in the last 12 months that has brought a lot of the second its time elements to the fore. So the way that we have counted it is we decided that for every Christie book we read we will also be doing a um, secondary reading or watching from a creator of colour that links up thematically um, And then we're also doing a charity donation as well. So um, if it's, uh, there was, um, I think we did Orient Express, we did the Trans Travel Fund. Um, We've done some um, uh, Jewish charities as well. Um, So we're trying to find ways to sort of, I guess negate the effects in real life you know that we can't we can't change the past um and I think in terms of the actual um secondary reading slash watching that's really interesting because it places those elements in a kind of discourse and allows us to think about um the ways that stories impact culture and vice versa and obviously um, having another voice that isn't a white Eurocentric one is really important at this time. Um, so, uh, even if we're not yet at the stage of bringing in, uh, crime writers of color, just because some, um, people can't read two novels in a month or six weeks, which is fair enough. We found that it's a good compromise. So yeah, so that's what we're doing. Um, thanks very much. Hello, my name is Kathy. I live in central Florida. And I really enjoy your podcast. I'm a huge fan of Agatha Christie. Have been for many years without giving my age away. Um, I enjoy her storytelling, but I'd like to discuss her take on adoption. You call the uh, it stuck in its time. I don't think even in Agatha Christie's time, the way that she talks about adoption is the way it was. If you adopt a child that child is your own, 
she kind of treats it like somebody purchasing an object that uh, they can discard. Like I said, even when I was younger, I thought that was a bit odd. Uh, just to let you know, I currently have two biological, biological children and one adopted child. I love them all three the same. And I'm pretty sure back in Agatha Christie's day, people who adopted children thought the same way. So I'm not sure where Agatha got her information about adoption from, but I still love her storytelling and I still think she's a great author. So anyway, that's my talk on Agatha Christie's take on adoption. My submission, time moves effortlessly and it is not uniform in the same instance and locality. There is a social consensus, but it's always moderated by individuals who react or display or withdraw from participating in the general same behavior. Fads or new ways of observation rise and then become subsumed in a change of circumstances. What we see identified in history and in fiction is most likely a single person's opinion that had limited currency and both the behavior and the opinion changed to something very different soon after. We also need to avoid presentism where the past leads to an evolved and complicated current ideal. We are not inheritors of the Enlightenment as groups or as individuals. We are all captives of our education in school and out and stagger from generation to generation under the dictates of chance. To take the topic with less emotional weight than race, gender, or sexual orientation, let's first look at Edwardian manners. There was a riot in a theater in Ireland when the word shirt was used. The accepted literary form was shift or smock. Shirt had the connotation of underwear, as the tails were wrapped around the private areas of a man in his trousers. Proper homemakers put skirts on chairs so the legs could not be seen attached to the seat. Chairs, in polite speech, were not called chairs, but, quote, an unmentionable piece of furniture. Their sin was that the intimate areas of the body made contact with them when sitting down. Not every English speaker, not every city or town in England, not every class of resident spoke in this way, but the custom was notable and sustained enough to be seen as pervasive, if not prevalent. Forgotten and out of use now, these forms were seen as exemplars of class and propriety. When I was growing up in the 1950s in California, I did not hear racial slurs in media, among my friends or within my family. But unremarked were commonplace terms such as to be gypped out of something, to be an Indian giver, to welch on a bet. I do not hear those terms in use now. We have an awareness of the power of speech to be demeaning of classifications of people, ethnicity, age, weight, health. And if we are cavalier at referring to one group, 
we can be assumed with some justification that we draw from a long list of denigrating terms. Our dear and beloved Agatha Christie, a product of her time, as we are of ours, made her characters, great and small, vivid to us with any number of writers' devices. Generic characters gather no readership. She was also writing for an audience who identified with her background, a worldly, intelligent Britisher in the upper middle class, with the foibles and blind spots of such a Britisher. For me, the stuck-in-time aspect is as curious as an insect sealed in ancient amber. It is perfect to its era and a privilege for us to see, both as how it lived then and to realize the world has moved to a place where it could not survive even if it reanimated. Robert Williams, regards from Mexico City. Hello, Catherine and Kemper. This is another Catherine calling from Denver, Colorado. And I've been very intrigued as I listen to your podcast. I just caught up with it this last year, actually, so I've been going back about your stuck in its time because those actually don't really bother me. I really appreciate you pointing them out. And I think in the current environment, it's very important that you do so, so that people who are maybe coming back to Agatha Christie or just coming to her for the first time aren't shocked and horrified. I think it's a good reminder that she was writing in a very different time and era and country, and that a lot of the things she experienced as a woman and as a writer were not how we view them today. However, I think it's part of what makes her her, and it's part of why you love her, it's part of why I love her, and some of those things that do make us cringe a little bit also inform us as to the world she was writing in. So for me, they very much round out the stories as opposed to detracting from them. And thank you so much for this podcast. It's made me read some Christie's I never had before and go back to a lot of others. And especially during coronavirus, you guys have become a very important part of my every three weeks. So thanks for what you do. And thank you for doing this episode. Hi there, guys of the All About Agatha podcast. Um, my name is Naomi. I'm a woman. I'm in my 20s and I'm from London. Uh, I'm also mixed race, so I'm a woman of colour. And I am uh, sending this voice note in response to uh, your query on Spotify about how I view, as an Agatha Christie fan, my relationship to her work and in terms of how she writes about race, uh, which is very much of its time. So, first of all, I think... I cannot, nor will I, excuse the way that she often depicts other cultures. I cannot and will not excuse the original title of And Then There Were None. And I cannot and will not excuse the way that she really kind of condescendingly, even if she doesn't outwardly mock, she does have this very typical British imperialistic attitude towards other races in her work. However, while I do not excuse that, I also do not think it is fair to hold her to the same standards as I would hold a writer today. She is a woman who is a product of her time. And I I think it's also interesting to examine it from those lens as a kind of a snapshot of the way a lot of writers saw the world and thought and the way the society of the time thought. And while it is wrong, I think it is 
important that we educate ourselves on why those attitudes are wrong so that we don't uh we don't replicate them in the future i think however in spite of all of that i think agatha christie is rather an interesting case because i think whether she consciously knew it or not i think she does have some rather interesting views on diversity um if we look at characters that were the most obvious one if we look at hercule poirot hercule poirot is a foreigner he is constantly described as being an other in the works um he his habits the way he dresses his style of talking it's made very clear that he's separated from the rest of the characters in all the books and he is constantly his uh his talent his ability is constantly put into question he's often condescended to by the people around him and yet he always manages to pull through it in fact and it makes it more inspiring because he is so underestimated that he pulls through same with miss marple who i would say is a real advocate for why ageism is wrong because she does you know she is this old woman who is able to use her mind to outwit people who are far younger than her and she's able to you know solve mysteries that a lot of police officers can't even solve so i think there is something to be said for that and i think she is very interested in kind of deconstructing the idea of the underdog and the kind of oppressed being able to work the system as it were and manipulate it to their own ends i mean probably one of the most obvious examples is romaine vol from witness for the prosecution who explicitly says that she used the british inbuilt bias against foreigners to achieve her goals so i think in that sense agatha christie was at least aware of the condescension and discrimination in british society and was definitely questioning it i also think that she when she writes certain characters who do hold that extreme bigoted view for example um if we think about philip from ordeal by innocence there's a quote in the book where he is discussing why he thinks tina could be a suspect and one of the things he says is um something along the lines of she's a dark horse and it's part it, it, i'm paraphrasing but essentially he says it's due to the part of her that is not white and philip is never portrayed in the book as being correct or being a likable character and neither is a character like emily brent or simeon lee from hercule Poirot's christmas so the characters that do hold those views she does frame in a negative light and the audience doesn't or the reader doesn't tend to root for them so in that sense i think she again does show that that kind of viewpoint while not necessarily challenging it as she could have done she does acknowledge that it's wrong and there is something negative and twisted and ugly about that and i do admire that i do admire the fact that she's even willing to acknowledge it on some basic level also she does something which i don't even think she was fully aware of at the time which is that she created a book that to my knowledge is one of the first western fully led poc murder mysteries death comes as the end as a period piece means that the entire cast of that of characters in that book are not white when they make the movie which i think is supposed to be coming soon i don't know what the status of that is but when that movie is made it will be cast with a poc cast and that's going to introduce her work to an entirely new generation and that's exciting it's wonderful that you're going to get a whole new group of people who perhaps never even picked up an agatha christie book discovering the joys of her work and what makes her so great and i think that's what makes her fabulous you know is the fact that her work has the ability to transcend and can be reinterpreted and reimagined akin to the way we would with shakespeare or marlowe or anybody else you know who 
while products of their time still have things to say and still have ways they can entertain us. Um, and I think the wonderful thing is that we're seeing that very clearly with a lot of the more recent adaptations of her work. If you look at Kenneth Branagh um, with, I mean, first of all, his um, his murder on the Orient Express by making the doctor an African-American man and giving him the relationship with Mary Debenham, it adds a whole new layer of complexity to that character and a whole new layer of emotional stakes as to why he's on the train, why he's willing to participate, why he and and Mary's relationship has to be kept under wraps. It really adds depth to his character, which as an actor is amazing to play. And I think, again, makes the character more relatable and gives them more richness and humanity than I think was even present was even more than was originally present in the original work. So I think, and then we also have, um, you know, the upcoming Death on the Nile, which, which Kenneth Branagh is doing. And that's a very POC cast. You know, you have Ali Fazal, who I think is playing like a combination of Andrew Pennington, I think Tim Allerton. You've got, um, you've got Letitia Wright and Sophia Canedo as Rosalie and Salome Osborne, and you've got Gal Gadot, who is a Israeli actress playing Letitia, um, playing Lynette Ridgway. So you have this POC cast who are able to breathe new life into these characters because I suspect that um, with Salome Osborne, from what I've seen from the trailer, they're going to make her a singer. So I'm guessing they're going to make some parallels between her and Billie Holiday and sort of playing up the idea that maybe part of the reason why she drinks is because of, you know, her race and the way that her career has been stifled because of something she can't control because, and that she shouldn't have to control that, you know, is unfair and she drinks at rage of the system. So I think that's going to be very interesting. I think it's going to make that character who originally was, predominantly played to comedic effect i love angela lansbury in death on the now she is fabulous i love that role but you know seeing salome ottenwald from a more human perspective i think it's going to add so much more weight to that character and give her so much more relatability and make her much more grounded and again introduce her work to other people so i think the fact that there is a space for agatha christie's work to be reinterpreted in that way and to connect to people in that way is a great thing, is ultimately a great thing. And it means that her work can stand this test of time. And even when we strip all of that back, the reason why I will always be an Agatha Christie fan, why I will continue to champion her work and look forward to any adaptation of her work that I, that I see is because ultimately she's just bloody talented. You know, plain and simple, what she's able to do with the murder mystery format, which I think really sets her apart from a lot of her contemporaries of the time, is that she's able to, yes, combine some of the archetypes that you've discussed, like the bronze man and the plucky, you know, the plucky heroine and so on. And she's able to use those characters as a framework to explore some much more deeper issues. Um, for example, with Endless Night, she really deconstructs the mind of a psychopath. With Ordeal by Innocence, she, she you know, explores the idea of adopted families. You know, you have uh, stories like The Hollow, where she explores the idea of sex and sexuality and the dangers of that and extramarital affairs, which, of course, you know, she probably drew from her own life experiences. Right down to And Then There Were None, which is a masterclass book, not just because of the ending and the way it really was a game changer in a lot of aspects, but because it is ultimately a book that is not just about the murders but it's a examination about the concept of guilt and the concept of accountability and what is justice same with witness for the prosecution that's very rich complex themes for a whodunit 
that's incredibly unique. And I think that intelligence, especially like if you look at Poirot and his love of psychology and human behavior, that sort of level of richness and detail in her work is what separates her and what makes her work so good and makes it so wonderful to read and reread and re-examine. And I love that. You know, I love seeing the attention to detail that she puts in her work. I love seeing how she's able to, yes, maybe take similar themes and characters and keep twisting them around and playing with the format. And that she's not afraid to, you know, push the push buttons and, you know, change the rules of the game to keep us on our toes. To this day, Crooked House is one of the few books I've read where I got to the ending and I literally yelled. I was in total shock at the ending. I never would have guessed it. And that's just the kind of writer she is, that she's able to invoke a response from me as a 21st century, you know, millennial who who is reading a book that was written years before even my parents were born. So that's incredible. And that's just the kind of writer she is. She is brilliant. And I look forward to seeing her work continue to be criticised and continue to be analysed and continue to be readapted and just continue to find its way. But I definitely think she's a writer that will last the test of time. I think that she deserves to. I think she is one of our great British writers. And I look forward to continuing to hear your podcast and hearing you break down all the wonderful and maybe not so wonderful parts of her work and just keeping the conversation going. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week, guys, and stay safe. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. What are you doing for the holidays, Catherine? Uh, what month is it again, Kemper? <laughs> That's a reasonable question. But the availability of eggnog leads me to believe that it is December. And at the end of this long year, I continue to think about the ton of enjoyment provided by the hit mobile puzzle game, Best Fiends. You know, Howie the Lizard, you know, during this time, he, he he's graduated to a bit of a long beard. And, you know, he's taken to wearing only wizard robes. And we should probably have a conversation about that at some point, but, you know, it's the holidays, so I feel like my gift to him is to wait until the new year to suggest a razor, maybe some pants. Well, that sounds like a lovely idea. And what do you think his gift to you will be, if you had to guess? Oh, well, it's the continued fun of battling festively dressed slugs, of course. I'm so glad that you have that, Catherine, as do many of our listeners. And if you haven't gotten it yet, yes, you, dear listener, engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Hey guys, Phil Yonda here. I'm from Houston, Texas. I just want to say that I appreciate the way you all handle the second is time category. What's perhaps more difficult is deciding how many points to take off for each and certain especially grievous incidents. But what's important is that we understand each of us have our own failings and that this is true throughout history, both individually and categorically throughout culture, peoples, and times. So we must handle each case and each person graciously and with understanding to be sure. And so we must understand that while Agatha Christie wrote or said certain things we wouldn't agree with today, it was mostly or at least 
partially in the air of her time. We are all of whatever age we are living in to some degree, and thus each stuck in his or her own time. As I reflect upon this, there is actually a huge difference between, say, an anti-Semitic book and Christie's use of cultural norms in her writing, namely that the former actually believe what they wrote, whereas Christie may or may not have. But then I suppose the question becomes, how does she handle those things, those issues that we come across in her writings? Does she condemn these things or applaud them? While it is true that she doesn't always condemn them, I don't think she always applauds them either. And she certainly has her own way of dealing with evil, as we see especially in Poirot with his version of extra-legal justice throughout, like the ending to one of her short stories in which the culprits die in a horrific, fiery plane crash. <laughs> but I'm not sure we could say that each offender meets justice of that kind, if any, so it's certainly a complex issue in her writings. Anyway, I know most of this has been covered by y'all before, but I do think, or I do hope this was helpful and something of what y'all were looking for. To sum up, I suppose I'd just say that I try to be gracious and understanding um, when I come across these things, but there have been times where I'll stop reading or watching something that I can't get past. Um, usually this is for excessive content, uh, questionable content and moral issues that are not not stuck in its time type things. So I appreciate you guys, and I'm looking forward to going through more of Christie's works with you all. Peace. Hi, Catherine and Kemper. This is Sarah from Germany. First off, I have to say that as a Christie enthusiast, finding your podcast has been one of the highlights of quarantine for me, so thank you. And I also wanted to say I appreciate your aim in putting this episode together, since, as you say, it's a conversation that can definitely benefit from having more than one voice. A question of whether one can ethically enjoy artwork that contains problematic elements and or whose author holds problematic views is one I've thought about a lot. And it's definitely something I keep in mind when I read Christie. There are, of course, a lot of elements that bother me, some of which you've already addressed on the podcast, like the trivialization and victim blaming when it comes to rape and assault, as crops up particularly egregiously in Nemesis, or the frequent casual use of derogatory slurs like the N-word or the G-word, which are horribly discriminatory towards Black people and Roma, respectively, not to mention the constant sort of casual anti-Semitism or for that matter, the continued ableism and the idea that everyone with an illness must be somehow faking it or exaggerating, or the classism that pervades her books. And as a queer woman, I also find a lot of the implied homophobia particularly uncomfortable. So yeah, there are two points I want to make. First, I feel like the term stuck in its time makes things too easy, since it implies that we've moved beyond those problematic elements now. Whereas all these forms of discrimination are unfortunately still very much around today, and we absolutely do have a responsibility to act and try to change that in 2020. As the Black Lives Matter movement has so necessarily highlighted, systemic racism is a central issue across the globe. Just last week, Jacob Blake was murdered by police, and two protesters were murdered by a vigilante teenager in the U.S., 
And here in Germany, there were massive protests over the weekend, which included a lot of right-wing extremists and Nazis. So to say those elements of Christie are stuck in their time lets us as readers of today off the hook. What I've attempted to do is to be as aware as possible when reading of these problematic aspects. Having already read almost all of Christie's books a few years back, I also try to see which aspects did not strike me as problematic back then, but do now upon rereading and reflect on why my own biases might not have made me as aware of these issues and what biases I still hold today and need to work on. And yeah, despite this, and keeping this in mind, I find myself able to enjoy Christie's work. I don't believe art is a question of all or nothing, that a work must either be perfect or dismissed entirely. The question for me is the impact of consuming and engaging with a work, and I feel like a comparison with another author whose work I used to love might be helpful in explaining this point of view, and that would be J.K. Rowling. In Rowling's case, you kind can't support or engage with Harry Potter without amplifying her power and platform to some extent, because she's so interconnected with the franchise and her power derives from the fandom around her work. Given the repeated horrifically transphobic messages she's touted recently and the very real harm that results from these, that's a hard ethical problem to resolve. Personally, I felt like I ultimately had to let go of my love for Harry Potter because anything else just felt unethical to me since it would add to Rowling's influence and ultimately her power to do harm. However, unlike Rowling, first off, Agatha Christie is dead, so enjoying her work now does not lend any power to any potential harm she could do in the future. And also, unlike Rowling, Christie has never deliberately aimed to use her platform to actively advocate against any marginalized groups, as far as I'm aware. I think it is crucial to engage critically with Christie's work and the harmful narratives it perpetuates at times. I don't think it's ethically really possible to read her work and say, oh, this is perfect, there's nothing problematic about this. But I do believe it's possible to reconcile that knowledge and that critical reading with an enjoyment of her work and her genius as a mystery writer. And so that's sort of where I've stood that being said, as a white person, that's easier for me to say since a lot of the problematic elements don't have an adverse effect on me and my lived experience, and I think that's also important to acknowledge. So yeah, those are some of my thoughts. I look forward to hearing what other people have to say about this. Hello, Catherine and Kemper. I'm Sarah in England. I heard the shock and disappointment in your reaction to Hickory Dickory Dock. I'm not here to defend how it is stuck in its time, but I would like to give it some context from this side of the Atlantic. Britain does not have the same racial history as the US. While this country played a key part in the transportation of slaves to America and the Caribbean, there was no domestic slavery on British soil. Britain up until the end of the 1950s looked very white. As the British Empire dwindled, its relations with former colonies was changing. Overseas students were appearing in central London, attending some of this country's top universities, University College London, Imperial College and University of London. This is the setting and inspiration for Hickory Dickory Dock. I cringed at certain passages, but much to my relief, I did not come away with the impression that Agatha Christie was a Nazi racist. 
I think she was experiencing the novelty and spectacle of students of colour on the streets of Bloomsbury and Kensington and using that as a plot device, just as she played on the xenophobic and anti-Semitic tendencies of the English throughout her novels. You posted during the first few months of Black Lives Matter and reading Hickory Dickory Dock does not sit well with this movement. BLM continues to bring home to us here that the UK is also systemically racist. But when the book was written, Agatha was reflecting a somewhat embarrassingly insular culture that characterised Britain in those times. Hi, my name is Kelly. I live in Washington State in the United States. I have always been a voracious reader, but only truly discovered Agatha Christie's books two years ago. I probably have over 50 in my library that I have devoured, and I love her wit, style, and plot twists. I think she's a genius with her dialogue and her ability to present the many facets of human personalities. How do I feel when I come across stuck-in-time elements in Christie novels? Well, to start, I have a bachelor's degree in history, so I tend to come from a more scholarly point of view when I read historical first-hand accounts, as I would consider the literature from Agatha Christie to be. I appreciate the ability to see, read, and hear time elements written directly from Christie's contemporaneous view. It's so interesting and valuable to understand the culture and rhetoric from a historical angle. Christie was a true master in her observance of people and personalities, and it literally jumps off the page in her writing. I don't pretend to know her own personal views on every social and cultural aspect, but I imagine that not every view of every character is one she personally holds. I think she is just very good at painting characters true to the thinking and culture of her time period. Do the elements bother me, and is there anything I can learn from them? Well, it depends on which way I internalize them. If I'm looking at it from a 2,000-foot view of an historian's interest in the past, I personally find it fascinating, as I do all first-hand accounts from different time periods. But this is a purely scholarly view, without emotion or bias, or as much as I can eliminate emotion and bias. From a more personal view, it does bother me and awkwardly awakens my cognitive dissonance in the sense that now I feel we know and think better. And when I read the time elements, it's a harsh slap of reality of how our society used to view people and circumstances. It's pretty uncomfortable to me because the society I live in has taught me that these ways of viewing and talking about people is inappropriate. But I try to give way for the past and a society of people who accepted this vernacular. I can make it a bright spot of thought that we have progressed in kindness and more understanding of the human predicament instead of constantly berating a distant society for their thoughts and beliefs in their particular place and time in this world. It gives me a chance to be grateful for the progression of our humanity, but equally aware that in 50 or 100 years, our own era will be looked back on, dissected, and very likely to be found as wanting as we are of Agatha Christie's era and judged just as harshly. With this in mind, I try to give space and grace for a time before when people thought differently. However, in my determination to give that space and grace, it doesn't mean I agree with or find their positions acceptable. What I hope for myself and for humanity is that we learn to hold our harsh judgments of each other in check. And as each generation's acceptable ideas and rhetoric evolves, that future society will do the same for us. And in the meantime, I love Agatha Christie, and I will continue to read her 
and I will continue to listen to your awesome podcast. Hello, Catherine and Kemper, and greetings to all your listeners. I don't find the of-their-time elements difficult to deal with. They don't interfere with my reading pleasure. They function as a slight bump in the road on an otherwise comfortable journey. I think this is because the writers of the day, any day, weren't trying to cause offence or distress. They were working, often at speed, in the service of the story and the reader. That's not to say some expressions and concepts aren't offensive to us, but simply that no offence was meant. So when I notice something which doesn't sit well with my modern sensibilities, I regard it as a message from the past, not from the writer. I notice it and I move on. Perhaps in 30, 40 years' time, people will find some of our language and terminology offensive. And I can already point to cultural differences, like the use of the word handicapped, which is common usage in America, but people in Britain largely don't say that anymore. More challenging, possibly problematic for me, are writers and filmmakers who are adapting or making original works set in the past. They need to navigate carefully those pitfalls, avoiding offence but not stripping out the reality of the past or smoothing over the realities of life. As the granddaughter of a parlour maid, don't get me started on Downton Abbey. Hi, my name is Whitney. I'm 33 years old and I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I've been a big fan of Agatha Christie since I was in college. Um, I fell in love initially through the um, PBS Marple series. I saw Sleeping Murder and was just enamored with her and started getting into the books. Um, I... Big fan of Miss Marple. She's my favorite detective. Um, I actually named my dog Parker Pine. Um, as you know, chaotic of a character he is, um, I, I do still have a softness for him. Um, and yeah, I really love your work on the podcast. I'm I listen to. I think every episode, um, a lot of times it depends on my relationship with the text that you're reading, whether I've already read it or seen an adaptation, uh, sort of depends on if I listen right away. Um, and it's also just nice to meet other Christy nerds um, in the year 2020. Um, so I am also a black woman and I've been involved in racial justice and social justice issues for a few years now. Um, you know, it's really, it's, it's the work that I do professionally. Um, and so I'm constantly thinking about racism and, um, oppression and really deep, heavy things like this. Um, and when I sit down to read Agatha Christie, uh, those that that train of thought doesn't go away, um, and so I really respect that you guys do uh, have the stuck in its time category because I, I think it's important to acknowledge that. Of you know, I might be reading something and uh, feel like I'm right there in St. Mary Mead, and you know, something super glaring jumps off the pages. Um, and yeah, it is it is difficult. Uh, but the way that I handle it is I 
honestly, like, I appreciate it because I feel like it's a historical document. Um, I recently uh, converted some of my friends to reading Agatha Christie uh, during quarantine, and um, that's been a similar sort of statement from them, is that it feels like you're reading a history book of this is how people talk. Um, and I think, especially when it comes to issues of class and race, it's sort of an intimate portrait that I, I don't think you can get from just like a pure history book. Um, you know, one of my favorite things is in And Then There Were None, where they make the cook cook for them right after his wife has died. Like, there's no expectation that he get the day off. Um, and like, there's, it just, it shows you the culture of that time so well. Um, and it's also, you know, really great at depicting how the war affected life in England. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think you just sort of have to have a balance. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not going to ever excuse Christy for some of the terms she used. Like, obviously, people were fighting uh, racism and fighting for black liberation, um, you know, during the time that she was writing these novels. Um, you know, so it's not necessarily that these were foreign concepts that you should treat people of color with dignity. Um, but it is it is important to just note that this is this is where she was and these are the people that she decided to create. Um, you know, do I think that that future generations should continue to to read Christie? Um, I do. I think that they're lovely stories, and um, especially at a time right now, it's it's nice to sort of disappear um, and get into a book where they're you know the bad guy gets what's coming to him at the end, um, but it's usually nonviolent. Um, but I, I hope that people continue to engage critically with the text because, you know, there there is a lot there. Um, and, you know, we shouldn't give a free pass to historical figures uh, just because they lived in the past. Uh, just as, you know, right now we can't justify the things happening in the world of just, you know, what are we supposed to do about it? Or this is what everyone else believes. Like, as we know, it's important to call out injustice when we see it um, now more than ever. And um, it's important to name that even if you're reading something written, you know, almost 100 years ago. Um, and I think, you know, it is almost impossible to read any historic text that does not have, you know, elements of classism or racism or, um, you know, just sort of problematic views on a variety of issues. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that that's helpful. Um, I do sincerely appreciate everything you are doing with this podcast. And um, I really appreciate that you are acknowledging how difficult this is um, and that it's not something that should be erased um, or dismissed that, you know, it is it is hurtful, um, you know, as a black woman sometimes um, when I can come across something uh, that Christy has written and I'm like, oh, God, is that what she would think of me? Um, 
but it's also, you know, I, I've decided to, to participate, to be a part of, uh, this work and enjoy it and, um, you know, criticize her. And, and that, that's a part of, I think, viewing any art, honestly, is having to be able to critique and criticize. Um, so yeah, I, I really love this podcast and I'm excited that you guys are trying to engage, um, on this topic this way. Thanks. Just a comment on your Stuck in Its Time um, analysis of um, Christie's work. My name is Jenny, and I'm just wondering whether the Stuck in Its Time term is perhaps a little bit of a cop-out, because after all, there are sadly plenty of people in modern society who hold very bigoted views. Um, and so I just wonder whether thinking of those sorts of ideas as being of the then rather than of the now is... Um, perhaps a way that we try to comfort ourselves um, a little. Um, so I just wonder what you guys think about that idea. Cheers. Bye. Catherine and Kemper, thank you for your lovely, humorous and super observant podcast. Uh, my sister and I listen to you all the time and we debate the issues afterwards and we live on opposite sides of the world. I live in Jordan and she lives in Australia. So this is one of the really nice ways that we can connect and we both love Christy and over the years we've read and reread all her books and we enjoy critiquing the adaptations as well. Um, so when I encounter parts of Christy's work that are problematic, the first thing I do, and this is the most important part, is to identify the problem as clearly as possible. I say this with a lot of love for Christy and for your podcast, but I find the term stuck in its time to be misleading and harmful. It mischaracterizes and it minimizes the nature of these problems. Whether intentional or not, in this context, calling something stuck in its time does also act as an apologetic that I don't think is justified or, or even necessary. Uh, let me explain what I mean. As you know, some of the problems that arise include racism, sexism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, and various other very serious matters. I confine myself to discussing only racism, but my argument applies to the other problems as well. Many people, including Dame Agatha, are racist. While this is more obvious when she uses explicitly racist terminology that I will not repeat, more importantly, her work consistently either ignores or condescends to the non-white world. If one assumes that all her acquaintances were racist too, it seems redundant in the context of your podcast to describe such folks as, as stuck in their time. It's more helpful to call out their racism because this is the reason you're deducting marks. More importantly, we know that stuck in its time is not true. Many of Christie's contemporaries did know better and with her privileges of class, education and travel, Christie should have known better. After all, all the evils that rely on racist ideology, colonialism, genocide, slavery, apartheid, segregation, and more quotidien daily acts of racial discrimination were as wrong at the time that they were committed as they are today. There were always people who said so at the time, and many paid a price for that. For me, if I confine my reading 
only to faultless writers. I would never read again. I would never write again. And I see the value in Christie's work, even if her racism is clear throughout. As someone whose antecedents were British and American, Christie's was a life of privilege that derived from systemic racism. So of course she was incentivized to reproduce it. Yet she was also ingenious and entertaining and moving and comforting and insightful and funny. And for me, all of this makes her worth reading despite serious flaws. For other readers, her racism may be simply inexcusable and that's understandable too. My point is that calling such flaws stuck in their time instead of racism obfuscates, obfuscates what is being balanced against what. More importantly, stuck in its time also obfuscates who is making the judgment call. As someone who is racialized, my judgment of her racism comes from a different place from that of someone who is not racialized. I think it's best for each of us to take full responsibility for our own positionality and what exactly we're balancing against what when we say it's worthy to promote such writers in spite of whatever the name flaw might be. And if we can't live with that decision, then we should stop promoting them. Hi, my name is Julie. I live in Oakland, California. Thanks so much for your great podcast and this great question for listener feedback. Um, I like the phrase stuck in its time because it's a somewhat generous framework that allows us to acknowledge problematic approaches to race and gender and sexual orientation and so many of the myriad complexities of our human condition in a way that invites discussion um, and that is not necessarily as polarizing as calling something out as racist or sexist or misinformed. Um, Stuck in its time gives us a way to point to the fact that Agatha Christie, a white person of privilege and means in 1934, just had some of these ideas baked into her worldview. And I don't think we solve anything by canceling Christie or turning on each other for the pleasure we find in reading her. Um, when I say someone like Christie is stuck in her time in regards to race, for example, to me this means that she unapologetically puts white people at the center of a world in which non-white people can be included, but only as minor and poorly drawn characters in that white person's story. And so people of color become stuck in their time as well, but with different implications, without the ability to tell their stories or have their own perspectives and version of themselves published and promoted and made part of those cultural norms too. And for Christie specifically, as we see repeatedly with Poirot, this is not just about white people, but is even more localized to be about white English people. You know, Hercule Poirot faces... Um, some discrimination because of his foreignness and his accent, but he's the classic example of the exception that proves the rule in that he's so incredibly exceptional that he's tolerated by white society because he's so skillful and is so useful to them, as well as comfortingly being a person of means. Um, so how do we deal with this? Um, how do we engage with the stuck-in-its-time aspects of our wonderful Agatha Christie? Um, I'm going to use another author I 
adore as a kind of corollary, and that is H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft was genius in so many ways, and, you know, he is, his ideas are so influential on fantasy and sci-fi that they're basically canon at this point. Um, he was a racist, explicitly so, and I used to listen to this Lovecraft podcast quite fervently, but their approach to the stuck-in-its-time aspects of Lovecraft was to just say that, oh, that's just what people thought at the time, which is true if by people you exclusively mean some racist white people. Langston Hughes was a contemporary of H.P. Lovecraft and of Agatha Christie, as were Zora Neale Hurston, Richard Wright, James Baldwin, you know, and those are just the writers, not to mention visual artists, dancers, musicians. The Harlem Renaissance was taking place, you know, during the time of Lovecraft and Christie. There were also detective novels being written at that time by African-American authors with black detectives. Um, so when we use the word stuck to describe Lovecraft and Christie, it really is to point out how stuck they were, and willfully so. Um, with all of this other culture going on around them. So one way I engage with Stuck in Its Time is to just continue to expand my understanding of the time, allowing more and more voices and perspectives in, so that Christie or Lovecraft don't have to be the only ones to define what that time is about. Um... You know, I look around at my current world, the cultural moment right now in my country, the United States, and I feel like we are also stuck in our time right now. Some people today hold the same views that Christie and Lovecraft did then. And I like a lot of movies and books and lots of things that just have a lot of these challenges. So the other way I really enjoy engaging with the challenges of Christie and other authors being stuck in their time is with things like Knives Out, which you guys covered in this podcast, and which is a piece of culture that takes everything that is great and magical about Christie, but upends some of the aspects that I find problematic. Um, you know, you guys have identified the never underestimate the help trope in Christie, and so it that made watching Knives Out so pleasurable for me um, because in Knives Out, the help and a person of color becomes the protagonist around which all the white people become her supporting cast. It's all of the fun of Christy, all of the things I love about what she does amazingly well, but an iteration of her in which a different voice and perspective gets to have narrative ownership. And I'm happy to report, I'm sure you already know, there's a ton of this that goes on with Lovecraft as well. Um, you know, right now they have the HBO series Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country, um, but there's been so much um, that different authors and writers and, you know, cultural creators have taken just all of the wonderful stuff about Lovecraft and just neutralized, you know, all of the stuff that makes it difficult. So I guess for me, the answer is just to continue to expand, include more voices, more perspectives, and that lets us keep redefining what a particular time is about. And I think that is how we are able to become unstuck. I really commend both of you for doing exactly that with this request for listener feedback. You are essentially taking the concept of all about Agatha and by being 
um, so inviting and so inclusive, expanding the idea of what Agatha is all about. So those are my thoughts. Thank you so much, you guys. Keep doing what you're doing. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, thanks a lot. That was a truly impressive showing from our listeners. You you really, I think, stepped up and exceeded our expectations when we prompted you for responses as to, you know, this issue when reading Christie, which we've grappled with for the last four plus years. And the point behind it, which many of you commented on, is that this issue is so much more well illuminated, I think, when there are more voices that are weighing in on it than just the two of us. So that's why, you know, that's what we wanted to do on this episode. And I personally just wanted to say thank you for doing it as well as you did. No. And I think that one of the things that we found most illuminating was the diversity of the audience, the number of countries that people left messages from and the real thoughtfulness, intelligence, and grace in the responses. And especially again, at the end of a very terrible year for everybody. It was lovely to see people continue to be so thoughtful and considerate and how they think about the world and they think about how they read. Absolutely. And we also heard from a number of you via email and via our Patreon site. And while we don't have time to read out each of those messages, there was one message that I did want to share because I found it really poignant as to uh, a reader's individual experience affecting her reception of these sorts of issues. So there is actually a spoiler in this message uh, for anyone who hasn't read Taken at the Flood. (laughs) You might want to fast forward a minute or two, but I did just want to include this submission in here. So here it goes. I love that book right up until the near strangling and Poirot's cheerful dismissal of it as just love. I first read the book more than a decade ago and recall being sickened by the casual dismissal and even approval of domestic violence. In rereading it, I had a similar experience and really was expecting you to slam that with a major demotion in your stuck in its time category. I was disappointed that it didn't receive a bigger demotion. It's not actually the violence that I find so upsetting, as obviously these stories involve frequent violence. It was the narrative approval of the violence that results in our hero approving and our heroine liking it. The social attitude that people should enjoy their partner's violent possessiveness or expressions of quote-unquote love has literally cost many, many people their lives and made many more stay in dangerous relationships. I was so upset about the ending of that book the first time I read it that I had to take a substantial Christie break. So unnecessary in a good book. I think it would be really nice if you could highlight the issue on the show and denounce that attitude to domestic violence. I don't for a moment think anyone would think you approve of domestic violence if you don't reopen the issue, but it's so valuable for victims to hear rebuttals of the romantic abuser trope that I think it would be a helpful service to your listeners. I was in an abusive relationship years ago, and my family and friends thought his quote-unquote passionate devotion and quote, can't live without me, do anything to keep me, end quote, attitude was romantic. It made it so much harder for me to recognize and escape abuse. Anyway, that's my pitch for revisiting that aspect of that book. Again, I love the podcast and I'm thrilled someone had the idea to do this. I so really appreciate you why that. I, yeah, I just, I wrote back and got full permission to read that message uh, for this episode because I just felt it was 
you know, really, as I said, poignant and important and um, it, just no, adding and, it to, I think, know, the, the chorus I mean, I of messages that, we got. Right. And I mean, I think that we try to not uh, generally bring our personal lives into this, but I certainly have some experience with being at least emotionally abused. So it's it's yeah, a topic I, it, that I think that particularly a lot of women have a great deal of experience with and perhaps... I don't know if we do it deliberately or not, but, you know, there are a number of cases, um, especially involving gaslighting, which I know very well what that's like. And so they come up pretty frequently in Christy, even when it's supposed to be a happy ending. Yeah. And I mean, that's why I wanted to read this out because I think it was, it, it, it's a really painful topic, but it's one that many, many people have dealt with. And uh, as you said, Catherine, especially many women. And I think perhaps it was easier for someone to write about it rather than to record a sort of oral message about it, which is why I just wanted to read it out and um, thought it was, it, it was just worth bringing that topic out into the light as well, even though it's of course been a while since our taking that the flood conversation. And I do totally agree. Well, and, and I mean, um, I will, also just note about taking at the flood is that we did bring it up, but we brought it up in regards to violence in general, right? That it's almost, an, it's an attempted murder essentially. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we did bring it up and taken at the flood in that regard. I think, could we have taken more points off for it? The answer to that is probably yes. Yeah, it, framing it in this way in terms of how it's, you know, a particularly harmful portrayal vis-a-vis -vis male aggression, I fully subscribe to that. So I think, you know, no, we'll be thinking I mean, about and, that. Right, and we again, and also, we have also mentioned Taken on the Flood as a book that we quite like, which I think is true. And as um, our dear listener who, you know, was thoughtful and brave enough to send that in, uh, mentioned it's actually a doubly abusive relationship because in one case you have an emotionally obsessive actual murderer and then you have an attempted murderer both in love with the same woman. And she's given this supposed happy ending with one of them. No, and I think I said that in the podcast that it really rubs the wrong way and at some level you almost would rather her be with the actual murderer. Who was psychotic but not in an abusive way towards her. <laughs> Exactly. Violent murderer, yes. However, not a domestic abuser. Right. No, it's true. And you know what? It puts me in mind of the fact that we took so many points off of the anti-Semitism that ends Peril at End House. But you could make the exact same argument for this, that it really does. You know, it's a book that is working on so many levels. And then it just has this final, just massively false note that really mars the read. So, yeah, point well taken. Very much so. And I think that especially when we reconsider our rankings the next time, I think it's uh, worth taking that into consideration because you actually see it, especially in a lot of the Papa Poirot of it all, you see some maybe mm -hmm. questionable romantic choices happening. Absolutely. There was also another listener who contacted us via email who had a similar plan in terms of reading other authors from marginalized backgrounds as a way of counteracting or neutralizing what they perceived as Christie's bigotry or insularity. And I, I just wanted to highlight that too. And one of our listeners who made a submission that we just listened to had the same idea. And I really love that because A, you know, it involves reading more mysteries. <laughs> and B, I, I just think it's such a proactive and constructive way to approach the problem. And I would say that, you know, if listeners do have writers who are coming from minority or marginalized backgrounds within the mystery genre, especially who they have enjoyed, we'd love to hear about them. 
and potentially recommend them in future episodes. That is something that is absolutely within our power to do. And mm-hmm. um, I think it would be meaningful if we did that. So I, you know, if we're making New Year's resolutions for 2021, don't be miserable is at the top of my list, but uh, <laughs> perhaps maybe do more to kind of spread the word about different authors right. for this specific reason might be high up there as well. Yeah, I think that we're really excited to actually do that. You know, we've done a little bit better this year with that, I think, Kemper. Um, you know, we've highlighted uh, some contemporary authors and we're going to keep doing that in the new year um, in interviews. And Absolutely. We're very, very excited about that. We love doing those. And I think that, um, you know, we did stuff like uh, Malice of Forethought, which I think we both really enjoyed. Anything like that is something that we're going to try to embrace because it also ends up putting the Christie of it all in the bigger context, right, of 20th century mystery novels as a whole. Absolutely. And then just my final point I wanted to make was just responding briefly to the last three submissions that we heard from listeners, all of which talked to some extent about the phrase itself stuck in its time and how Mm -hmm. that phrase can potentially be misleading or even harmful. And, you know... I, I point well taken on that as well, because, you know, we of course realize that the issues Christie is presenting in these texts are issues that persist to this day. It's not that the racism or sexism or xenophobia or other forms of bigotry and discrimination that we see in these texts are, uh, to quote one of, one of our other brilliant co-hosts on this episode, curious as an insect sealed in ancient amber. I love that description of these depictions that are stuck in their time. So it's the depictions of those issues that are stuck in their time. It's the depictions that strike us as being badly or at least awkwardly and insufficiently addressed in the texts, right? Given our current experience of the world and of each other, we fully acknowledge and are fully aware that the underlying problems and issues that they're about persist to this day. So I want to make sure that there's no mistake about that. And I think that one of the things that we do, of course, that's the case. I do think that one of the things that, and why we use that phrasing was because we are covering so many decades with one author, we see Mm -hmm. how her personal viewpoints change. So her viewpoints in 1920 are different than her viewpoints in 1960. So I think we partially use that phrasing to pinpoint a specific person in a specific point of time. But that is not to detract at all from the fact that all of these things are issues that are unfortunately, usually still ongoing. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it's, you know, it kind of goes to the the point that another one of you made just now in this episode about how reductive it is to say that people thought X at a specific point in time, since obviously people were, you know, just as varied in 1922 or 1952 as they are in 2020. And even Christy herself changed as a person and her viewpoints changed. And that's something that we've been mapping and discussing, you know, as we're going through the well, years here in, in terms right. of her canon. But no, and I mean, I think the, the best know, example that, again, we keep going back to this, but it's the hickory dickory dock of it all, which is that I don't really believe she had anything except good intentions in writing that book. She was mm-hmm. trying to represent something. It, it just in 2020 does not come off well. 
Totally. And the idea is, you know, we're not giving Christy a pass because she was writing a long time ago. We're not, in fact, giving her a pass at all, right? No. I mean, that is that is the whole point of this issue. No, and the, but, point, and the point is, as I think another one of you said, you know, what it does is it gives a good lens about um, what we're saying today you know, we might come back to this in 10 years and think, geez, why didn't we like take off more for something? Or why did we give this a pass? Because that is what changes. Standards change. People change. Totally. Which is also why we neither give her a pass, nor do we condemn her wholesale. Right. Right. And that, and I was also really struck by the fact that so many of you in this episode pointed to the same piece of evidence to prove that Christy is so much more than just an insular and bigoted colonialist, which is her longest running detective character. I mean, so many of you pointed out as, as so many scholars of Christy do, and rightfully so that Hercule Poirot is a foreign refugee who English people constantly mock. And then even to a certain extent, her second longest running detective character is an old unmarried woman, one of these quote unquote surplus women, right, of her time, who is consistently overlooked because of her age and her gender. So I love how Poirot and Marple themselves are useful reminders of just how complex this whole stuck in his time issue is when it comes to Christie, because, you know, everything should come back to Poirot and Marple in the end, shouldn't it, Catherine? I mean, let us not forget Mr. Quinn and Mr. Satterthwaite, who we adore. (laughs) But yes, I mean, at the end of the day, ultimately, we're still going to be talking about Poirot and Marple till the end of time. Yes. I would sort of just say in closing that I think I'm going to make an effort in future rather than just referring to it as problematic stuck in their time elements, which is a bit imprecise and misleading, to refer to them as problematic depictions that feel stuck in their time. Because that that truly is what we mean. And I think that's mainly come across, but I do understand why sometimes the shorthands that we use for it can be a little bit misleading. So it was very helpful, I think, to hear that from many of you. And I think to try to alter how we're doing things slightly so that we're communicating as best as we possibly can. Our next episode, by the way, is going to be Cat Among the Pigeons. And I was also super excited uh, that one of you in this very episode pinpointed that novel as to doing actually kind of well in terms of some of these issues, as opposed to Christy not acquitting herself well. So I'm also very excited to discuss Cat Among the Pigeons uh, in our next episode. Very much so. And thank you so much again for listening, first of all, um, and commenting on Twitter, especially, and Instagram. Apologies to the people who are commenting on Facebook. I know that we don't necessarily have as big of a presence there. Uh, Go to Twitter. (laughs) But what I guess I just want to say to close out this year is that listening to all of these recordings just made me grateful for the diversity of opinion and the thoughtfulness of all of you. Couldn't have said it better myself. 100% agree. So have a wonderful holiday season if you are in fact celebrating holidays or simply we would like to wish you a happy end to this Annus Horribilis and all of our good wishes and best hopes for a better year in 2021. We will be back very, very shortly with our uh, Cat Among the Pigeons episode. Cannot wait to discuss that. And of course, we always want to hear from you. So if any of your 
fellow listeners uh, inspired any thoughts that you would like to share with us, you can always email us at allaboutthedamageemail.com. You can contact us on our Patreon site and get some bonus content as well. We are over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. And as Catherine mentioned, we are very much on Twitter. That is at allaboutthedame. And Catherine is very much on Twitter at Brobcat. We are much less so on Facebook. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha, but it doesn't get updated all that much, alas. And we are on Instagram, which, uh, you know, falls somewhere in the middle. That would be at allaboutagatha for our Instagram handle. And uh, if you haven't yet rated and or reviewed us, please take a moment to do so because it just helps us reach more people. And as you can tell, we love reaching people and widening this community of crazy Christie fans in which we are so delighted to find ourselves. So have a wonderful end of the year and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.